That was the monster-like lumbering beat of Frankenstein by the Edgar Winter Group, released in 1973, peaked at number one on the charts in May of 73, and 1973 is the year that we're talking about this week, because this week's movie is Frankenstein, The True Story. This is Richard Chamberlain from Kansas City Cinephile, and to my right, Jeff Owens from ClassicHorrors.club. Welcome to the ninth episode well, the ninth of the episode. Classic yes. Horse Club Podcast in our, our ninth meeting. Uh, I'll call the meeting to order. Richard, how are you? Are you down from the high of Monster Bash yet, or are you still coasting on fumes? I think I'm still coasting on fumes. We, we both made kind of a mutual decision not to go to our local horror convention, Kansas City Crypticon, because, of course, it's really more geared towards uh, modern-day horror. And I think after just immersing ourselves in the classic horror, I, I needed a bit of a break. There was no way it was going to come close to what we experienced in, in Mars, considering that we have both already reserved our rooms for 2018. I think we're definitely looking forward to next year's event. And I'm okay having missed Crypt Crypticon. I, I hope they had a fantastic time. But for me, I enjoyed a, a weekend off. Yeah, I woke up on Monday morning having not gone, and you know what? The sun still rose, the world still spun. I quickly got over the fact that I did not get autographs from Dirk Benedict or Sam Jones. Life goes on. You know, there's always going to be another opportunity. We've got several conventions here in Kansas City, and, and you never know when they might come back to one of the other ones. There's been some repeat guests over time, so uh, I think there's always a chance we may see one of them again. Yeah, you never know, though. I mean, this week we had two major losses in the genre. We did. We did. We lost uh, the legendary George Romero. In fact, last night, uh, I made it about halfway through Night Riders. I finally dived into that and uh, going to finish that up today. Uh, that is a guilty pleasure of mine. I've probably seen that movie more than I've seen like Night of the Living Dead, because it would pop up on HBO quite often in the 1980s. And, of course, it had nudity in it. And so the young uh, teenager in me would always want to stay up and watch all those movies I shouldn't be watching on HBO. I also love the movie, though. It's, it's, it's a quirky little film. It's miles apart from the Living Dead films, but I, I enjoy that one a lot. And I guess it's just getting a release on Blu-ray. I saw the... The thing, uh, is it Shout Factory? Don't quote me on that, but I think they're putting it out on Blu-ray finally. Oh, wow. I did not see that. I didn't watch anything when I heard the news. I had just recently watched Night of the Living Dead before we went to Monster Bash. And then, of course, we both watched Martin before we did the Nightmare Junkhead podcast. I kind of chose Martin to uh, write a little tribute to George A. Romero that was on uh, DownrightCreepy.com and BoomHowdy. Dot com That just really made an impression on me. And as anticipated, and as rightly so, people are going to remember Romero for the zombie movies. But he was a talented filmmaker. And, and one of his early efforts, Martin, is just just fantastic. I, I really, really liked it. And I hope people will watch that and look into that when they remember his legacy. Well, I think you look at Knight Riders. In theory, I'm, I'm, I'm interested to how that ever got greenlit because it is a bizarre film. It's a fun film, but I mean, can you imagine sitting at the table and say, I've got an idea for a movie. We're going to do a new take on the King Arthur legend, 
but it's going to be more like a Renaissance fair meets motocross. <laughs> that was that was that was a good comparison uh, last night. That uh, the person I was watching it with said, "This is a motocross film," and I said, "Yeah, I never thought of it that way, but yes." Yes, uh, and it's quirky, and it is a Renaissance fair meets meets motocross meets King Arthur. Yet it got greenlit, and yet people are still talking about it all these years later. And it often gets mentioned as one of his more well-known films, aside from the Living Dead movies. That, and of course, you know, I think it, some of his other Creep Show is the other one that gets uh, mentioned a lot. And that's a movie I really do want to revisit. I recently re. Well, not repurchased, purchased for the first time the reprint of the comic that had been out of print for many, many years and, and had an insane price attached to it. And I heard, of course, that a lot of people said some of the original copies wore out over time. The binding didn't last. Hmm. So uh, this is a brand new printing and uh, interesting that it happened literally just a few months before the uh, passing of George Romero. So certainly our thoughts and prayers are with him and his family. Right, and then the other was not quite as big in the horror genre, but nevertheless, Martin Landau, who played Bella Lugosi in uh, the Johnny Depp movie, Ed Wood, all about Ed Wood, won an Academy Award for it. He's sort of related. Space 1999 was really the, the thing I knew him for, although I'm sure you can talk about what he's probably most famous for, Mission Impossible. Mission Impossible, which you kind of, again, get, you know, some of these shows get crossovers, right? Because I think a lot of people watch that who saw him in Space 1999 or watch that because Leonard Nimoy from Star Trek was Martin Landau's replacement. When Martin Landau and his wife Barbara Bain left the series, Leonard Nimoy came on in the role of Paris and he was the new master of disguise, where that was always uh, Martin Landau's thing on the show. Essentially, Leonard Nimoy was just a, a his version of, uh, his character Paris was a, another version of Roland Hand, who was Martin Landau's character. Wow, I didn't know that. And then at what point did Tom Cruise replace uh, <laughs> Leonard Nimoy? Uh, that would be many years later. And, uh, you know, we're going to go off on a tangent here. I, I liked what they did with, with the first movie of Mission Impossible. Then it became the Tom Cruise show for a couple films. I will say the last couple of movies, Tom Cruise has actually allowed some of the other cast, Simon Pegg in particular, to kind of shine a little bit and, and get some, some more screen time. So it's not like the original series, but it, it's, it's more in tune than what they did there for a while when it became just all about Tom Cruise. Because in that way... It wasn't Mission Impossible at all. Those early episodes, though, with Martin Landau, I think, are the best. You get the Cold War feel. By the time Nimoy comes on, you're getting some more of the psychedelic 1970s, early, you know, late 60s, early 70s kind of hippie vibe to the show. And they were doing a few things that weren't, weren't always Cold War related and, in my mind, weren't as good as the ones with Martin Landau. How long was Leonard Nimoy on Mission Impossible? Two years. Really? And the show went another two years after he left. And I'm trying to recall those last two seasons. I think they did less of the disguise because there really wasn't anybody who took on that role. I, you know, don't quote me. I vaguely remember maybe Peter Graves doing some makeup work and maybe some of the others. But uh, they opted not to have a, a full-blown replacement in because of that, it became less part of the plot. And I think the show ran 
I want to say seven seasons, maybe, because I think Martin Landau was with it for three, Leonard Nimoy for two, and then it went on two years beyond that without Nimoy. Perhaps that's some information we can provide in Old Business next time, which we need to get to Old Business, but I have to take this opportunity, since we're on a tangent, and since someone mentioned Tom Cruise, I don't think it was me, but... I have heard some disturbing news this week, and I think I've been very generous in my opinions, very positive about the possibilities of Universal's Dark Universe. But when I read that they're seeking Channing Tatum to be Van Helsing, I'm done with it. They obviously aren't going down a path that I had hoped they would. Maybe there'll be some one-offs here and there that will be good. There's hopes for Bride of Frankenstein with the director, but overall, what they're attempting to do, uh, no, I, I'm done. I'm not convinced they, they know entirely what they want to do. I think it's, you look at the DC franchise, you know, I, I think that Wonder Woman was a huge hit. But the question is, how long are they going to be able to ride on the coattails of that, depending on what happens with Justice League in November? And now, I heard yesterday that Ben Affleck may be done as Batman. The Batman movie has been up in the air for a while now, and now the powers that be reportedly are looking to go a different direction with Batman. So the question is, how long will Ben Affleck be Batman? I had, they were supposed to do a part two of the Justice League movie, but now that's been off the plate. Uh, the Flash movie is, I think that's off the plate too. That's in, in limbo. Cyborg is the only one that I think had really that, and I think Shazam. They they didn't they did announce at Comic Con this week that Shazam is going to start filming in January with Dwayne the Rock Johnson. No, that's that's did they oh. that, did they because of the last I read, he's not Black Adam anymore. Well, I read that he was in it. They didn't say who. And my question for you was: Is he still playing Black Adam, or is he going to be freaking Shazam? It could be. I mean, that's. I mean, you know, I like. <laughs> The Rock is in like every single movie. Uh, I don't know when the guy sleeps. But he he has a certain quality about him that might work for Shazam. Then again, it's like, I don't know. He's I'd I'd almost like to see somebody new, an unknown actor, take on that role. And not somebody that we've seen in, in 20 other films and as part of multiple other franchises. Let's get somebody new. There's got to be somebody new out there who we can put in this role who we haven't seen before, and let's see what they can do with it. I'm not sure DC knows what they're doing. I don't think Universal knows what they're doing. They all want to be the next Marvel. Marvel has their act together. It seems like every time Marvel puts out a movie, for the most part, they knock it out of the park. There, there may be a flaw here or there. There are certainly some fanboys out there who have grown weary of the Marvel movies. I haven't yet, but Marvel has created this this need, I think everyone wants to be that next big franchise and automatically, instead of just planning one movie at a time, let's plan the next six. I get it. You can you can create ideas and introduce ideas in movie one, pick it up in movie three if you've got a plan. But then if movie one falters, then all of a sudden all this talk and plans that you have go out the window and, you know, it amazes me that they're still talking about doing more Transformer films when the last Transformer movie bombed, yet they're moving forward with it like they, well, you know, we just don't care. We're going to keep doing it, what we, what we had planned. I don't know. I, I, I think uh, I'm not as excited about Bride of Frankenstein because I'm not a big fan of Angelina Jolie. Uh, 
I'd rather see an unknown actress in the role than someone who I, I'm not a particular fan of. So I'm going to go in with lower expectations and hopefully be surprised. But those are two franchises that, that I'm kind of going in with each one movie at a time and let's see what they can entertain me with. Wonder Woman really did entertain me. I've got lower expectations for Justice League because I, I have concerns about that movie. So, And I it wouldn't get so worked up about it or even care if they didn't make it such a big deal. Why don't they hold it close to their vest? If they want to have their plans, that's fine. But don't announce them and, and let everyone know this is what we're going to do. Because you're right, they likely won't end up doing it. I don't believe at the beginning Marvel said, hey, we're going to do a shared cinematic universe. That sort of came after a few of their movies and people figured out, oh, they're kind of connected. Am well, I even right? I think after, no one knew at the end of Iron Man that there was going to be that Samuel L. Jackson little clip. And of course, once he said the Avengers initiative, then you're like, well, wait a minute, maybe there's something coming on. And it was several months later when The Incredible Hulk came out and Robert Downey Jr. starred. Then all of a sudden you're like, hey, there's, there's, they're connected. And then you started to have little snippets here and there, and then movies announced. I think that the problem is social media. Everyone wants to get the hype on it. You know, we could go off on a tangent. I've never been to San Diego Comic-Con, and I'm not sure that I really want to go anymore. It's become this this big week-long festival of who can top who, and, and this trailer and that trailer, and standing in line for this panel and, and getting maybe getting a snippet of information. And I don't know, there's a part of me that likes a little bit of mystery. Um, surprise me. It's always nice to hear what's coming up two years from now, but then ultimately it changes and the hype that we had two years ago. Exactly. It's too early. It's they too build early. expectations. That's too much time between now and then. And my last comment on it is, and it's a rhetorical question because this is Hollywood we're talking about. But why is everyone so insistent on recreating something Marvel's done? Let's how about coming up with something new and fresh that can be your own thing. I think and that's that's you know Marvel has created this environment. I think, and then I think you're exactly right. Let's 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 go for something new. Let's you know let's not just go with the same tried and true actors. Which yes, I get it. They're guaranteed box office. People will go to see Channing Tatum. They're targeting an audience that doesn't include you or me, unfortunately. They're targeting uh, a more youthful audience that just wants to go to everything Channing Tatum does. Unfortunately, the old school monster fans that you and I are, are sitting back saying that's just not what we want. But we're not part of that that demographic anymore. That they, That prime youthful age where all the, the money is... We tend to get kind of lost in the shuffle, unfortunately, and, and that's that's been part of of, of Hollywood and, and the television industry for decades. And unfortunately, you and I are beginning to age out of their their mainstream demographic. You know, but that doesn't matter because we have all of the wonderful things that came before that we can talk about. That's why we have this podcast. So let, let's get to it. Uh, let's get to it. That was quite a tangent. Uh, yes, yes. Remind, uh, mental note, don't ask Richard how he's doing. <laughs> it's all my fault. Yeah, it's all no, my it's fault. too much an open-ended question. My fault. My fault. Uh, but before we get into old business, we are brought to you by the Phantom Podcast Network. I'm getting better at remembering. It didn't say it at the beginning, but 
Yes. Anyway. All right, old business. Couple things, couple factual errors to correct. Last episode, we talked about Joshua Kennedy and his new movie, Theseus and the Minotaur. I did not remember, Richard didn't remember, who did the stop motion animation in that. And his name is Ryan Lingyel, L-E-N-G-Y-E-L. Very nice work. That was one of the highlights of that movie. So Yeah, great old school work in that. That was the highlight, one of the highlights of the film, easily. Wanted to be sure we mentioned his name. Also, we mentioned the Amityville Horror. We weren't sure when it came out. We thought maybe 78, but that was, in fact, 1979. And then finally, we mentioned a podcast that we listened to in the car en route to Pittsburgh and Monster Bash. And uh, we do have information on that. Uh, Richard, tell us a little bit about that. It's called The Secret History of Hollywood. And um, there is a website out there. And I guess a, a companion piece podcast called Attaboy Clarence. Um, I don't have the gentleman's name. I, I looked at the website, and although he gave a very long, detailed description of who he was, uh, he didn't give his name, unless I totally missed it. But if you do a Google search for Secret History of Hollywood, um, there are some amazing episodes out there. We listened to the Universal Horrors one, which was fantastic, nine hours long or whatever it was. There is a three-part series on Alfred Hitchcock that is something I'm going to be listening to as I'm making my way through the Hitchcock movies for my blog, kccinephile.com, shameless plug. I mean, it's like three parts long, and they're like four hours, five hours, six hours, nine hours long, incredibly detailed. We might not have agreed with everything that was said, but there's there's no uh denying the amount of love and attention that goes into these podcasts this is it's not just a guy doing a 45 minute show rattling on about movies there's a lot of production that goes into that they've got an episode on Sherlock Holmes uh looks like there's an, a couple of episodes on gangster films he's covering a lot of the the classic movie genres and uh definitely something to check out uh when you're going on a long road trip And I have to say, I was just a a little disappointed in it. Yes, overall, it was fantastic. I think you and I, being the experts we are, may have found a couple of of errors or or things that we We don't believe that were true. My biggest disappointment was, though, it started out great. And what really interested me was the history of Universal Studios. And they talked about you know, how it was formed and the people, the personalities and what they brought into the process of, of releasing the movies. But then that just kind of dropped off. They got to the point where, gosh, I guess it was after probably Son of Frankenstein when there had been a two-year lapse. And from that point onward, they didn't really talk about behind the scenes anymore, who was running Universal. They didn't talk about That's when true. it became Universal International. And that, those were the things that were interesting me in the first part of the podcast was uh, those people and the, those personalities and sort of just the behind the scenes structure and, and operations of Universal. So that, that kind of tailored off towards the end. And I would like to have seen more of that, heard more of that. I, I agree that they, they did kind of drop that part of the, of the podcast and it became... The second half is really more of a, this movie was made in this year, this movie was made in this year, giving a lot of good information along with it, but they did drop the what was going on with the studios. And I don't know the reason behind that. Maybe it was a matter of lack of information available or, or what, but nonetheless, certainly still worth checking oh, out. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, despite its flaws. And like I said, 
if you're a monster fan like us, there's going to be a few things said in there that'll make you bristle a little bit and say, I don't think so. But, you know, we everyone's entitled to their opinion and, and uh, doesn't deter from, from what is really a well-put-together show. Yeah, as long as it was, it could actually have been longer and would have not have suffered for that. Well, our last bit of old business is, and this will lead into uh, our main presentation for today, we had a guest on our last podcast. We did. Uh, our very first guest of the show, um, breaking format a little bit and throwing in an extra episode rather than a full month wait. You only had to wait two weeks, which will make some of the uh, gentlemen that we broke bread with in uh, in Mars, Pennsylvania. I think we were, a couple of people said, hey, you just need to do more episodes. Well, not going to go on a, a, a new format. We're still going to go with a monthly format, but occasionally, as we have guests on the show, uh, we might break that format a little bit, and that's what we did a couple weeks ago, if you're listening to this as uh, this episode comes out, when we had Sam Riven on the show. That's right, and he was a guest of such magnitude, I'll say that, oh, yeah. that we wanted to devote a full two hours for him. I don't think we could have brought it in under that if we had tried. He has so many wonderful stories. He, of course, has written an article in Little Shop of Horrors number 38 about the epic untold saga behind Frankenstein, the true story, which is the movie we're going to talk about. It's an incredible magazine. I, I say he wrote for it. The whole magazine practically is the story. We won't go too much into that. Listen to our last episode. He'll tell you all about it, how he, he fell into writing this article and his passion for the movie. And it's just, it's a fascinating read. He was an entertaining guest. I was thrilled that we had the opportunity to, to bring him on the show. Yeah, it's essentially a book. It's a, you call it a magazine is, is a disservice. It's a book about Frankenstein, the true story. And uh, even though in the episode he talks about how he's going to be, uh, he's currently researching and writing a book, semi-related and kind of an offshoot of some of his research that he did for Frankenstein. It's it's an amazing piece. Little Shop of Horrors is a magazine I've been aware of, and now really want to go back and look at some of these past issues. It has its its roots going back to the 1970s as a as a fanzine. And the uh, the amount of attention and detail that goes in, they put two issues out a year, and again they're like books. They're they're dedicated to one movie and uh, clearly give you a, a tremendous amount of information. So definitely going to be looking at some of those past issues and adding them to uh, to my collection. Yeah, and we'll put in the show notes how you can get the magazine. It's also in the last podcast uh, Sam explained, and we also had it in the show notes there. But well, well worth the investment, which isn't that great in an investment for so much material and beautiful cover by mark maddox other art inside i mean little shop of horrors is always just a beautiful magazine to look at i think this is their first gatefold cover that actually the inside of the front cover folds out into a three and it's it's like a mural i think that's the first cover yeah Yeah, it's absolutely beautiful all right any old business or anything else before we take a quick break and then start talking about Frankenstein, the true story. I think so. let's just dive right into it. I think you, you've got some clips from the the show. Yeah, there play. isn't a trailer for it that I could find anyway. And it, since it was on TV, there probably wouldn't have been a trailer, especially in 1973. But uh, we'll play this little clip and uh, then be right back to talk about it. It was a 19-year-old girl of good family who first breathed life into Frankenstein's creature. She will shock you with her horrific fancies. Go on, touch it. 
movie. Well, that's hardly surprising. It's been alive for more than a month. It knows you! Get it off! I must speak to you alone. Henry, listen. Look, I can... Don't leave me alone with it. There's nothing to be afraid of, Elizabeth. She will transport you into a world of Regency glamour. To a world of danger and excitement. An accident? How many? Seven. Seven of them there were. Male or female? Oh, such fine young lads. Were the bodies much damaged? Who knows? Well, where are they? But they're using the stables as a temporary morgue. Those eyes will open. Those limbs will move. That brain will be alive. Scenes of rare beauty, such as when Prima, the female creature, is brought to life. More menace. No, never! My experiment, as you call it, I shall regret that for as long as I live. As a result of last night, sir, three people are dead and ten more seriously injured. We are still searching for the maniac who is responsible. You think you've got us all in your power. You have incriminated us. But I warn you, Polidori, I no longer care what happens to me. I am going to stop you. Victor! This is our chance. It's in there. With him. What? No, wait! More adventure. Help me! Help me! Victor! That man is your worst enemy. Leave him to his fate! Shapen creature, burn traitor, burn Henry Clovel. You want to get rid of him just as much as I do, you hypocrite? Out here. Welcome back. We are here, as we said earlier, to talk about Frankenstein: The True Story actually a TV movie that aired in two parts in, at the end of November in 1973. Richard, tell us a little bit about what was happening in 1973. Well, if you're looking at movies in the cinema, uh, there were certainly some classics that came out that year. 
uh, a little film called The Exorcist came out in 73. And depending on who you talk to, it's one of two films that changed the direction of horror. Some will pinpoint George Romero's Night of the Living Dead in 68 as a definitive cutoff point for classic horror. Others will say it's The Exorcist in 73 because of, of the overall theme, the uh, the graphic nature of the movie, the fact that it was literally making people sick in the theaters. From that point forward, we had, we had been getting a bit more of the blood and gore, but The Exorcist was, I think, a, a definitely a turning point uh, towards uh, the more graphic horror, and the old-school horror was, was becoming a bit of the thing of the past, and, and that's unfortunate, but you know it also signified... Uh, a, a period of time where you could get more intense with the films and, and a lot of classics would come out in forthcoming years. Another film, Westworld, uh, was released in 73. Huge hit. Recent uh, blockbuster ABC or ABC, HBO uh, series. Dirk Benedict, let's mention him again because uh, 73 was the year that came out. And there are seven S's in that, by the way. That and, is the official spelling. And on my notes, I officially typed six. So I uh, a, a faux pas on my part. We're going to have to correct that next episode. Exactly. Um, other horror films that came out that year um, or sci-fi films, Soylent Green with Charlton Heston, uh, The Wicker Man with Christopher Lee, uh, Fantastic Planet, Legend of Hell House, Battle for the Planet of the Apes came out in 73. Other films, we had American Graffiti, Paper Moon, The Sting, Serpico, High Plains Drifter, Enter the Dragon, and uh, Live and Let Die, which had a young Jane Seymour in it, who is also one of the stars of our movie. In the world events... The May I interject for a minute? Yes. So uh, this is interesting, some of the things you said to me about sort of the era's Night of the Living Dead and the Exorcist and all that. So in the 60s, I think it was a lot of psychological horror. I mean, Psycho had come out in 60, and, and the, sort of the tone changed then. Night of the Living Dead definitely was uh, another uh, movement from that, and then, of course, The Exorcist. You mentioned that the classic sort of gothic thing was going away and it was they were getting more gory more colorful so frankenstein the true story is kind of in the middle of that i mean it is a gothic presentation but it's really in a new way it's it's not particularly gory but it's certainly told in a, a fresh more modern way it just seems to me in the context of what's coming out it's sort of in in a middle ground maybe a part of a transition along with the exorcist and I do, like, by the way, like to draw a line between Night of the Living Dead and The Exorcist because I think between those was sort of its own little era. When The Exorcist came out, that really kicked off a totally new thing with so many satanic movies and occult movies and things like that. So rather than choose one to you know draw a transition, I, I like to think there's really two there. And then if you think about that, Rosemary's Baby really was sort of a combination of both of those. It was a more uh, cer cerebral, psychological type movie, also then bringing in the, the satanic aspect. So really, you could compromise and say that was the transition if you have to choose one. And That's a good point. So I had to throw that in there. I've actually been doing a little research for my blog on uh, trying to, to create some 
eras or ages of horror as they're known. So that was fresh on my mind. Thank you for letting me share. I think The Exorcist probably had opened the, the, the floodgates for a more graphic storytelling than, than Night of the Living Dead did. Um, and maybe it was because it was in color, maybe because it was just a, a few years later. But if you look at the movies that came, of course, post-Exorcist, movies like Last House on the Left and the Texas Chainsaw Massacres and, and The Hills Have Eyes, those are some pretty intense films. The Exorcist, although not necessarily bloody, was very, very graphic and very intense. And I think you're right. There is that era between Night of the Living Dead and The Exorcist that's kind of a unique era. Plus, I don't. Sh- I'm not sure Night of the Living Dead really got its most success then when it came out it in '68. I think it was the midnight movies later, even into the '70s, and even maybe after that that we really realized how significant that was. Exorcist was just box office bonanza from the start. News events of the day: an average income uh, per year was twelve thousand nine hundred dollars. Gas was forty cents a gallon. You could buy a new house. For $32,500. Uh, you could buy a new Ford Galaxy 500 for just under 4000 OPEC restricted the flow of oil, causing the price of oil to increase 200%. Uh, Roe v. Wade happened. Uh, U.S. troops withdrawn from Vietnam. Watergate begins. Armed members of the American Indian Movement occupied the town of Wounded Knee, South Dakota, from February until May. Skylab was launched. And uh, I thought this was interesting. Vice President Spiro Agnew resigned, and then he was replaced by Gerald Ford, who then became uh, President of the United States, uh, what, less than a year later. Gerald Ford, of course, is the only man to serve as president who was not elected to either the presidency or vice presidency. Hmm. I remember hearing that once upon a time. I hadn't heard that for a while, so... Speaking of horrors, 1973 was a particular horrific time for music. It's the post-late 60s, early 70s, Woodstock era, pre-disco era, which is its own measure of horror. You had an interesting time musically in 73. You had the number one song that year was Tie a Yellow Ribbon Around the Old Oak Tree by Tony Orlando and Don. I guarantee you that's the only time you're going to hear mention of Tony Orlando and Don on a horror podcast. Other songs, Let's Get It On, Crocodile Rock, You're So Vain, Bad Bad Leroy Brown, Rocky Mountain High, Live and Let Die, Paul McCartney and Wings, of course, from the movie of the same year. Uh, But on a higher note, musically, Dark Side of the Moon by Pink Floyd was released in 73. So not all was lost uh, in the world of music. Richard? If disco is horror, remember, I love horror. <laughs> and I have to admit, I, I like a good disco song myself. So, uh, But that was, that was the start of an interesting uh, time musically. But 73 was just as interesting. Uh, on television, some of the more popular TV shows, Sanford and Son, Maud, MASH, All in the Family, Marcus Welby, The Waltons, Gunsmoke was still going strong in 73. But it was about two years away from that infamous 1975 rural TV implosion, I guess, is where CBS just did this big push and they canceled a bunch of their shows and the 
well, early 70s, I guess they did this. Gunsmoke survived a few more years, but that's when they canceled uh, Mayberry RFD, Green Acres, Beverly Hillbillies. Gunsmoke was initially part of that. It survived, though. It managed to survive, I think, another year or two before it finally uh, rode off in the sunset in 75, never getting a final episode, and the cast found out. After 20 years on the show, they found out the show was canceled by reading it in Variety. Not Jane, on Twitter? Not on Twitter. No Twitter in 70, in 70, uh, 75, I guess, is when Gunsmoke ended. So when did the Waltons start? Because that sort of would fit in that group, but was it stylistically or something a different generation? I guess a little different. I want to say 72 was when the movie The Homecoming came out. So the Waltons was probably in its first year as, as, a, as a TV series. TV movies had been popular now for several years. Um, and, in, and in 73, we had a few big ones in the genre. Um, Satan's School for Girls is one that's still talked about. One that I wasn't aware of, but you were. We talked about this before recording. Scream Pretty Peggy, which uh, featured Betty Davis. The Six Million Dollar Man, the original TV movie, was aired in, I believe, September of 73. Lee Majors as Colonel Steve Austin. Uh, it was followed by two more movies, Wine, Women, and War, which came out in October, which had guest star David McCallum, who is one of the stars of our movie. And then um, The Solid Gold Kidnapping, which was uh, aired in, in November. Then the uh, Six Million Man series uh, officially launched in January of 74. And then another movie, The Night Strangler, uh, with uh, Kolchak, uh, Darren McGavin, who was in the Six Million Dollar Man movie as the original version of Oscar Goldman. He was called Oliver Spencer and was much more of, uh, of a jerk. He wanted to basically put Steve Austin to sleep every time he was done with a mission. Uh, the Night Strangler was the sequel to The Night Stalker. A third movie was planned, but then the decision was made to do a full-blown TV series, which launched in January of 74. TV movies were very popular in the day. We were on the... I think the early, early phase of doing full-blown TV miniseries, which really didn't hit the stride until the late 70s and early 80s. But Frankenstein, the True Story, essentially was a miniseries. It was two nights, uh, two hours each night. It became problematic years later when trying to syndicate it. And we'll talk about that in a moment. Um, but let's dive into Frankenstein, the true story, 1973. Yeah. And just one other quick coincidence, I guess, well, not coincidence, but, uh, the gentleman who did the music for Six Million Dollar Man and Kolchak, the Night Stalker, a man named Gil Mel, he also did the music for Frankenstein, the true story, which I've heard people say should be released as a soundtrack. It's a, it really is a great score. It's a very good, very good score, and as with any movie, uh, it can be enhanced or it can be a detraction if you don't have a good soundtrack. But a good soundtrack will enhance a film, and, and certainly is something. In fact, I just thought of that this morning. I was rewatching a few clips, and I, I just picked up on the music again and thought, "Wow, this is really good music." And again, for a 1973 TV movie, most TV movies of the day filled in a 90-minute time slot. Uh, they were 75 minutes long without commercials because there were fewer commercials back then. 
even the Six Million Dollar Man movies were only 75 minutes long, the first three. Uh, this being broadcast over the course of two nights and totaling three hours in length made it certainly an exception to the rule. This was more than just a TV movie. This was a full-blown TV miniseries, which again, we really wouldn't get a lot of until you get to the to the latter 1970s when you started getting into the things like Roots and out into the 80s with the, the Thornbirds and War Remembrance and Shogun. Uh, Frankenstein, the true story, was in the early, early days of that. So overall, before we like, get into plot or anything, how, how did you like this one? I loved it. it. This was a first time viewing for me. Well, not first time, but first time in, in probably 30 years since I had seen it. I watched this quite a bit when I was younger because it popped up on television with great frequency, for me anyway, in the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, living in Wichita, we had cable, and we got Channel 41 out of Kansas City, which back then was an independent UHF station. And they had movies. Monday, Actually, I think it was seven nights a week. They did movies at 8 o'clock. And Frankenstein, The True Story was aired numerous times uh, over the course of two nights. And uh, that's where I first watched it was you know probably circa 1978, 79. And remember watching it quite a few times over the years. And then I hadn't seen it again. I was aware of it. But I hadn't hadn't seen it again because it wasn't being broadcast on television. Uh, because uh, as you get to the late 70s and there started to be a lot of uh, made-for-syndication television series, Star Trek The Next Generation being at the forefront of that in 87, UHF stations began kind of cutting back on their movies, their old classic movies, and began filling them in with these original made for you know syndication television series and then of course when the fox network came along a plethora of uhf stations converted to being fox tv which again limited to when the movies could be played movies would be played maybe late night maybe saturdays and sunday afternoons but even then uhf stations began playing movies less and less and so the opportunity to play something the length of frankenstein the true story became greatly limited and it became essentially forgotten. Even in its VHS release, it was the condensed version, uh, which just doesn't work well. Anytime you do a condensed version of, of a miniseries, you, you miss plot points, you miss storylines. It, it ends up being very choppy. I watched a condensed version of Salem's Lot that way. Mm, right. And it's horrible because it's just, you're missing key scenes. The best way to see it is it was originally broadcast, which is, again, you know, in its full three-hour length as a two-part miniseries. And I know I saw it when it first came out. I, I know I did. I, and I had the paperback. I think we're going to talk about that later. There are some differences in the novelization of, of the movie that was released in paperback. It didn't make a, a lasting impression, I guess. I mean, I always knew it was there, but I never really remembered it fondly or anything. I was very eager to rewatch it. I don't think I liked it as much as you, it sounds like. It's a very different take on the Frankenstein story. And it's really, I think the the name, the true story, really is one of the further uh, descriptions you could give it from what Mary Shelley's original tale was. It's Frankenstein's presented in a way that's different than he has been before. It's just, I don't know, it's unique. 
Well, that's why I like it. I think I yeah. like it for its uniqueness because we've seen the, the Frankenstein tale so many times. And what is interesting and comforting about that is that it originally wasn't called Frankenstein, the true story. I think that was a last minute decision uh, Sam wrote in the article to, to give it that name. I think it was filmed under Victor Frankenstein. Do you remember? It was, sounds familiar. Yeah, yeah. And, and then only at the last minute. And <laughs> I think if I'm remembering that even uh, the writers, Christopher Isherwood and Don Bacardi, they, I don't believe, were happy with a lot of things that ended up changing the name was one of the things they weren't necessarily happy about. I think that um, when you look at this movie, I think, yeah, it's a very different version of Frankenstein. For me, nostalgia kicks in, and that enhances watching this again after so many decades, and the familiarity of the cast. There's a lot of familiar faces that we'll run down here in a moment. Yeah, let's go and do that because that is, I think, one of the the biggest things about this and that's something Sam writes about is the cast. It was really, for that time, a top-notch cast. And he he tells stories he did on our podcast and in the magazine as well about other huge names that wanted to be attached to this project. But the ones they ended up with are just fantastic. Well, you want to run them down, Richard? Yeah, we've got James Mason as Dr. John... Polidori, who is not in the novel. He's essentially based on the Dr. Pretorius character from Bride of Frankenstein. A little bit of a twist on it, but it's it, basically it's James Mason being James Mason. Um, he just has a way about him that I think if you watch most of his movies, he's kind of playing the same character. He just has that way of talking. And I can't even attempt to do a James Mason impersonation or I would. You can do a good Nigel Thornberry I, imitation, I, I, though. I could. I could do Nigel Thornberry. We've got Salem's Lot, uh, where he played Mr. Straker, came came out what about six years later, is a movie that I love watching time and time again, and I love him in that. Uh, he was Watson in Murder by Decree. He was in Boys from Brazil, Journey to the Center of the Earth, North by Northwest, 20,000 Leagues. A lot of genre films or pseudo-genre films, so well-known and he gets top billing, I believe, but he's not really the main character. And I think he gets top billing because he was James Mason. Right. You have uh, Leonard Whitling as Dr. Victor Frankenstein, who didn't really have a lot of other credits to, you know, film credits. Um, he was still riding on the wave of success by appearing or starring as Romeo in the 1968 version of Romeo and Juliet, which was very popular in the late 60s, early 70s. So um, he didn't do a lot of too much work, I don't think, after this. Uh, I I saw a quote where he was basically talking about how he was thrust upon being a a star by appearing in Romeo and Juliet and kind of compared himself to Orson Welles, who had such a, you know, dynamic start to his career and then spent decades just kind of easing back into the spotlight, which is really what Leonard Whitling did. And I'm sorry to correct you. I don't think there's an L in that. I think it's just Whiting. Is it Whiting? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, and I think possibly is he the youngest person to have played Frankenstein? He's 23, was 23 at the time. And I think even, I think the way he was portrayed in the movie, he's certainly one of the younger characters. May I don't know though. Every um, All of them have gone to, to school and they're, Coming yeah, out of I'm college, to, so I'm maybe not. Think Sting was fairly young when he did The Bride in the 80s, 
but maybe he was he still may have been a little bit older than, than Leonard was. I think he might be right. I think he might be right. We have David McCallum, who played Dr. Uh, pronounced Henry? Henry? I believe so. Uh, Clervell. Um, well-known actor. Again, character actor in some ways. Popular modern audiences will know him from NCIS. He was, of course, uh, Ilya Kiryakin in The Man from Uncle. He was in Sapphire and Steel, The Invisible Man, episodes of Night Gallery, The Outer Limits, classic episode of The Outer Limits that was just on television the other day, The Sixth Finger, uh, well-known classic episode. David McCallum, you mentioned Invisible Man. That was a TV series, right? TV series, okay. yes. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that. That was I liked that. It was a good series. Now, I've actually never seen Sapphire and Steel. I know it's a bit of a... A genre film uh, series from from Britain, and I want to say, and I could be wrong that they're time travelers, but I could be hmm. totally wrong. I've never heard of that. Um, I've never seen it, but I, it's it's been on my radar for years, and I've just never had the opportunity to catch an episode. Uh, Jane Seymour played the character of Agatha, basically the creation of uh, the bride. The bride, essentially, yeah, yeah she's the bride. Live and Let Die came out the same year, so she was the early start of her career. Of course, Dr. Quinn, Medicine Woman, is what she's more well-known for in recent years. She was in the first, I guess, the, the pilot movie for Battlestar Galactica, and then, and then the two-part episode that followed. So she was in the early days of that classic series. And I have to say, I think of the cast, she delivers the best performance. I've never really liked her. Well, I don't know. For me, her peak was somewhere in time. I just loved. Oh, I forgot that. that one. Yeah, yeah. But she's fantastic in this. She, we may talk about it when we get there. But when she is the prima, the the second creation, she has some mannerisms that, on one hand, they sort of actually reminded me of Elsa Lanchester. Sort of some little jerky mannerisms of her face, but she's just delightfully evil and beautiful and. Really, her performance stood out to me, and that that was a surprise rewatching it. That yeah, her performance was was so good to me. Yeah, there's there's definitely uh, some horrific scenes with her character. Nicola Pageant played Elizabeth. Lots of television work over in the UK. It seems like um, so. Beyond that, not really anything other genre related, unless I'm missing something. She was in a Hammer film, not genre necessarily, unless there were vampires. And werewolves in Viking Queen, but she was in Viking Queen, oh, which Viking. was a hammer. I guess that is, yeah, yeah. Uh, I've never seen Viking Queen. I, I have not either. Michael Wilding played uh, Sir Richard Fanshawe. A lot of his name sounded familiar, and I start looking at his his list of credits. A lot of TV work, and I think that's probably where I've seen various TV character actor appearances. Uh, a couple of Hitchcock films. Uh, under Capricorn and Stage Fright, two of his lesser-known efforts. Uh, and this was his last film, actually. He died, I believe, several years later. That name is so familiar to me, and I don't know why. I looked at his credits, and it's not because of any of those movies. M- maybe it's familiar to another name. Did he have a, a private life, maybe, where he was hooked up with someone? It, it come, Elizabeth Taylor comes to my mind, but I don't think yeah. that was him. That was somebody else. I, I felt the same way. I was like, his name sounds familiar, and I looked at his TV credits i thought well i've seen those so maybe it's i just you know recognized him or, or recognized that name uh now agnes moorhead had kind of a smaller role as mrs blair but agnes moorhead is is a legend of course she was 
and I want to say, and Bewitched had just ended right about this this time period. Uh, of course, she's playing Andorra on Bewitched is what she's probably most well known for to a lot of people. I also know her for playing uh, the role of Margot Lane on the old time radio uh, version of The Shadow. She played opposite Orson Welles and then Bill Johnston. I think she was on the show for five years. Um, she was a well-known old-time radio actress. Um, did a lot of work on old-time radio episodes. But The Shadow is, is is something she did for about five seasons worth. And and her work, if you're a Shadow fan, an old-time radio fan, she's the definitive Margot Lane on old-time radio. She's the definitive Endora for sure. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So she plays Mrs. Blair, who's the housekeeper, I guess, of the house that... Uh, young Victor Frankenstein goes to and where he's staying during the, the period of his experiments and creation of the monster. Richard, did you not think she is the Una O'Connor of Frankenstein, <laughs> the true story? If there's ever going to be anyone close, yeah, she, she definitely she did a little over the top performance. there, not as, as shrill as Una, but I definitely made that relationship. Yeah, I could see that. I, I could see that. Uh, we had a, uh, Sir Ralph Richardson in uh, again kind of a smaller role. I think his, he was he was there for name value. I think played Mister Lacey. A lot of genre films: uh, Greystoke, Legend of Tarzan, Lord of the Apes, Time Bandits, Dragon Slayer, Rollerball, Tales from the Crypt, Whoever Slew, Auntie Rue, Doctor Shivago. Of course, not genre, but a classic. Did you know that he made his debut in 1933's *The Ghoul*, opposite Boris Karloff and Ernest Thesinger? Yes, did not. Yeah, he, he had a small supporting role. I can't remember the character's name, but that was his that was his uh, theatrical debut. Interesting credit opposite mm, Boris no Karloff. No kidding. Who just happened to play the monster in a little film called *Frankenstein*? <sighs> Everything kind of fits together like a big it's puzzle. A- You've got uh, Sir John Gilgood, who played Chief Constable. Again, I believe he was there for probably name recognition. I think it was only one scene. Yeah, maybe I, I don't two. think he was in two at most. Of course, he'd become known about a decade later for Arthur. Um, he was in Gandhi, Chariots of Fire. Of course, he was well-known prior to Frankenstein for performances in like Hamlet and Beckett. Definitely a, a well-accomplished actor. He also played Sherlock Holmes on, uh, again, an old-time radio broadcast. So, last but not least, and here's my Doctor Who connection, Tom Baker played the sea captain. Uh, He was about a year away from uh, taking on the role as the fourth Doctor on Doctor Who. Of course, he was doing other parts around this time period, Vault of Horror, The Golden Voyage of Sinbad, movie called The Mutations, which is a remake of Freaks, also known under the title The Freak Maker, which starred uh, Donald Pleasance. Hmm. Uh, that's a bizarre film. I, I used to have it, and it got purged years ago. I didn't realize that was a remake of Freaks. Yeah, huh. yeah, a bizarre, I mean, loose adaptation, but yeah, it's definitely a remake of Freaks. Uh, and he played, keep mentioning Sherlock Holmes, he played Sherlock Holmes in a... Uh, BBC miniseries called Hound of the Baskervilles, uh, which came out in the early 80s. Now, he was not last nor least. You didn't even mention who plays the creature. Michael Uh, Sarazen. Oh my gosh, I missed the creature. Michael Sarazen. And I I like Michael Sarazen a lot. He's perfect for this role because one of the unique characteristics about this is that 
creature created is not an ugly, hideous monster. He is a beautiful man, uh, and that the word beauty and beautiful is played up all through the movie. But yeah, he he comes out perfect. And and Michael Sarazen, he was in a movie, The Reincarnation of Peter Proud, which I absolutely love. Don't remember which came first, but it was about this time. He did a lot of mainstream movie work. I mean, he he was you know definitely a busy actor. Uh, genre related, the only thing really other that I could find was that he was in an episode of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Honestly, don't even remember that episode. Uh, but I, and I think he, he was a young actor that I believe was coming up and was being groomed for the next big thing. And he was in a movie called They Shoot Horses, don't yes, they? Yeah. I think that's where he really got notoriety. Reincarnation of Peter Proud was two years after. It was in 75. But I also know him from a movie in between there in 1974 for Pete's sake with Barbara Streisand. Oh, yeah, yeah. Love that movie. So uh, I I don't know. I, I really like Michael Sarazen, and he, he's good in this as well. Very impressive cast. Again, I think a lot of these actors and actresses were brought in for their name recognition. This was a big two-part TV adaptation, and so they wanted some big names. They were all featured prominently in the opening credits, even though they only had one scene. They they would have their their picture, their name, in the opening credits to capitalize on the fact that they were starring in this film. When you look at some of the other other credits, like you know, as far as the the teleplay and, and the direction, it was directed by Jack Smite. Not a name that just rolls off the tongue. He's got a few films within the genre. Of course, he did the big war epic Midway, uh, which some will say is an overblown epic. Uh, he would do Damnation Alley a few years later, which is a guilty pleasure of mine. Some people hate that movie. I actually enjoy it. It's just low-budget, cheesy fun. Much better film. Um, he directed The Illustrated Man, which is a great anthology film starring Rod Steiger based on the Ray Bradbury book. Um, he did lots of TV work, including four episodes of The Twilight Zone. So again, not necessarily um, a super well-known director, but I think did an incredible job with Frankenstein. And you got the teleplay, written by Christopher Isherwood and Don Bacardi, not the rum. <laughs> um, not even spelled the same. Not even spelled the same. They, of course, loosely adapted the, the novel by Mary Shelley. We alluded to earlier that supposedly they weren't happy with, with the finished product. There was some, some decisions that were made that they didn't necessarily agree with. The script, of course, was adapted into a, a paperback tie-in, and there was some things incorporated in that paperback that we did not see in the movie. A prologue in which Mary Shelley is telling her tale of horror to uh, Percy Shelley and Lord Byron, and Dr. Polidori is actually in that scene. Supposedly would have featured uh, Nicola Pageant as Mary, uh, Leonard uh, Whiting as Shelley, and David McCallum as Byron, and James Mason as Polidori, which would have been, I guess, kind of the connecting point of the prologue to the film. And instead of that, what they ended up doing for the prologue is very interesting. The and I don't know if it was only on the uh, DVD. I don't know if when no, it originally I re- aired. I remember that. Oh, do you? Okay. I do vividly remember So it that. starts up with uh, James Mason Polidori riding up in his carriage to, I guess, was that the Frankenstein home or was that the Elizabeth's home? 
anyway, he rides up and then freeze frame. And then the actor James Mason comes on and he talks about what we are about to see. In a modern setting. He's like in, in modern day England. Exactly. And he's walking through a cemetery and goes supposedly to the grave of Mary Shelley, which is not actually her grave. Uh, but he just he talks about how, you know, we've never seen a, a production of Frankenstein like this. And they show clips uh, for what is going to come through the rest of the episode up clear through the end. Then concluding that, and I don't know if there would have been a commercial at that point, but then the, the story goes back to the beginning in scenes well before Polidori rides up and, and the story begins proper. I, I like Frankenstein. I didn't like the James Mason in the modern day setting. That no. made no sense. And it's see on, on the DVD version we watched is essentially both parts back to back at any other point. I mean, there's no epilogue, there's no introduction at the beginning, and then never repeated it. Um, yeah, and it seems like, I mean, that's an easy part. I don't know if it's because of they added this introduction, but the movie starts rather abruptly. Before you even have your bearings of what's going on, that has happened, and that, of course, will be the catalyst for every time with that to even learn who is that person ahead of time with his brother, Victor, that his death would cause him to do everything he does. I think even and to see, you know, the, maybe the affection they had for each other, that kind of thing, without knowing really who that character was, that death had no impact on me as a viewer. I'm like, okay, we witnessed somebody die. Now, obviously, it plays out as the movie goes on, but I think that could have been done better. And I think that's another, the opening, actually, really, the whole opening of the film is odd in the way that it's 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 constructed very non-traditional and i can imagine a bit jarring for someone in 1973 diving into this is like if you're flipping channels and this is the opening star of the movie is it going to be something that's really going to pull you into the film or would seeing you know a that the prologue with with shelley and telling her tales of horror which would be reminiscent of Bride of Frankenstein, would that have potentially drawn people in more? I don't know. And I'd almost rather they omit that scene because the next scene is the funeral and Victor walks out of the funeral. He says, you know, why is this God's will? Any fool can give death. Why can't we give life? Uh, If Satan could teach me how to make William live again, I'd gladly become his pupil. It could have easily have started at a funeral and we learn it was his brother that that little scene that would have been a much better start eliminating the whole James Mason prologue and the whole drowning sequence and starting with that scene in the cemetery with him or the in the uh, church with him then walking up and walking out would have been a much more powerful start to the film i think so yeah so let's i mean this is as we said this is a more psychological telling as the movie goes on i mean there's a lot of similarities to the age old tale but there's some key differences the the character of, of Dr. Uh, Clervell is, is a mentor, and he's really kind of the, the mad scientist of the piece. Victor is, is less a mad scientist in this film. He certainly he had some out-of-the-box ideas, shall we say, but he's not viewed in this film quite as much of a mad scientist as he is, whether we're watching Colin Clive or certainly Peter Cushing. Who comes across much more 
mad in, in their in their methods and gestures. Yeah, I like the way you said that out of the box because yeah, that scene I just depicted at the funeral, it is his idea. He has that idea. I don't think he has the, an earthly idea of how to execute that idea. If he didn't, you know, run across Clerval when he returns to university, I don't know that he ever really would have created. That was Clerval who 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 spurred him on, you know, and I think yeah, I think I think whereas, you know, in other adaptations it is clearly Victor's idea, and he's doing it on his own. Yeah. And I don't know if there, I don't recall another Clavel in any other Frankenstein movie. There have been people like them, but they have always been under Frankenstein's tutelage and have been his assistant or someone to bounce ideas off or, or someone to help him. But it, Frankenstein you, normally in most movies is more in charge of the situation. I think one of the reasons they did that is they wanted to make Frankenstein more sympathetic. I don't think they wanted him to be the bad guy of this story. No, and I think, you know, again, it, it, when the creature is created, again, we have a, a, an attractive, good-looking creature, which, again, is, you know, for the most part, you know, I think the only time we saw anything remotely like that was in one of the Hammer films where he created... Woman? A woman, yeah. Was it Frank Sankar created a woman where he creates someone who's beautiful and and ends up kind of going down a darker path but she doesn't have the hideous appearance that we would typically associate with the creature yeah so the the thing here that takes it into the world of horror is that yeah he's born or created beautiful but he starts to deteriorate and this is a fact that is becomes evident i believe to clerval through another experiment and knows that's going to happen uh, before victor does Things happen to Clavel. Victor kind of figures it out on his own. But what happens is he just, he literally starts to deteriorate. He gets huge patches on his face. Poor skin goes away and there's gray underneath. Really good, sort of subtle makeup, I would say, through the whole movie. He never becomes a total monster, but by the end, he certainly, it looked like they had put a, an appliance on his brow, you know, to make it so that it was swollen and his eyes are sunken and very subtle, very horrific, nevertheless. Essentially, he's rotting, really. It's, True. It's, it's, he's rotting, and both mentally, because he's becoming more animalistic uh, in nature, and and he's not as eloquent as as he was. And so it's almost like he's rotting uh, from the inside out, mentally and physically. Now, I have a question. This might be jumping ahead. I, I don't know. So, spoilers, right? Clavel dies, and isn't it his brain that they put in, that Victor puts into the creature? That's how I followed it, yeah. Okay, so my question is, and this is not particularly for this movie, but any Frankenstein movie, it, it just struck me here. Why does the brain not maintain the memories of Clavel? It, it's reset, basically. It's the brain of a child. Victor has to teach him how to eat and how to say words I guess though later though doesn't it? It sort of comes back, doesn't it? I think so. Maybe it was yeah. just in a dormant state or something. I don't, I don't know. know. Maybe the the equivalent of of such a traumatic experience is the equivalent of a stroke or something coming out or, of a coma, or something. Yeah. Something okay. Like that. I guess that or makes sense. Like sometimes you retain memories, not sometimes you don't, but you do have to be reeducated. He doesn't. He he walks immediately, so he certainly has has that ability, and he speaks beautiful, being his first word, right? 
Um, so I mean, so certainly he retained some of it. You know, some of it he had to be re-educated. Did we miss anything really significant that happens before that creation? We need, oh, I will say it got well through the first part, and I thought, well, this is going to be a Frankenstein movie where there's no one digging in graves. But they did ultimately have a scene where they went grave digging, grave digging to get body parts. But it, it really plays for a long time like it's, there's not going to be anything like that. It's a much more, again, dramatic telling of the story, and, and the horror elements are, are certainly are present, and indeed there are really some very horrific moments. But then there's, in between those elements, you've got really kind of long stretches where it's simply telling a story, and it's, it's, it's much more of a gothic story with a hint of horror um, at times, kind of lurking in the background, and then a horrific moment will come forth, and, and then it goes back into the background again. One of the significant original ideas in this is the way the creature is created, not from lightning or from a storm, but from solar power. Yeah. He's so, I, I thought that was interesting. Yeah, I, I, had, I rewatched that scene this morning, the creation sequence, and I, I, I liked the, the Frankenstein lab, so to speak. I mean, I liked it. It was... It was Elements of, of that we had seen in others, but also different, vastly different in some ways. And I actually liked, uh, I liked the way that that, uh, that was overall handled. Yeah, let's talk about the production a little bit. Uh, we mentioned the cast that was so great. Production values, top-notch. I don't have names of any of the creative people involved, but yeah, Richard talks about the set. One thing that struck me was the hospital that Victor goes to when he returns to university to pick up his studies very bleak very dark walls were peeling paint a lot of detail for really a scene like that which isn't in it that plus it just reminded me of the times what a dirty filthy place a hospital was and that's somewhere you're supposed to go to get cured and healed well they just they 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 throw that that poor guy on the table and then just whip out the saw and I give him a shot of bourbon and give him another shot. Is it going to hurt? Saw, saw, saw. Hey, I'm going to take this arm and throw it in a bucket. Is this, yeah, very realistic for the time period. It was not a time period you wanted to get sick in. I guess that, that plays a big part as to why you didn't have people living to be a ripe old age. I mean, you had medical conditions like that. Uh, a simple... A simple broken bone could very well be the death of you if you had to get it amputated. I don't think that they were very clean, very antiseptic. I, I think it uh, people could get you know diseases just from from breaking a simple bone. And you know, now that I think about it, that's sort of an interesting contrast because a lot of this movie is set in high society ballrooms, fancy dresses, proper marriages, and and families. And then you see this other side—that's this horrible, dirty hospital—and really. Basically, from that is where the the evil or the horror comes from. So it's an interesting contrast. I'm not sure I've really thought about that before. Uh, the other thing I, in the early parts I would say is I think Elizabeth's role is beefed up a bit. Usually she's going to get married and he leaves her at least temporarily to go do his experiment. And that's about it. She's someone there. And, of course, later she may become a victim or the monster might use her as leverage against Frankenstein. But here she, she plays a bigger role, and certainly her parents do. Her parents, um, those were 
you mentioned Michael Wilding earlier. Uh, Sir Richard Farnshaw was Elizabeth's father, and and they play a big role. She, I, I don't know. Did did you agree? Did you think she played a bigger part? I think bigger than than she is in most films. Yeah, I mean, obviously in a lot of films she's not even seen, depending on which version you're watching, or she's or her role is so downplayed. Definitely, uh, her role was beefed up. I agree in, in this film. Plus, he's a stronger woman, I think. Yeah, too. and plus, he brings her in, I think, where he doesn't always. Doesn't he eventually? She wants to know what's going on, and doesn't he show her? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, he kind of includes her into to the work to, to an extent, which is, again, something that's missing in a lot of other adaptations. Is like, she's, and she's always, uh, more times than not, she's played very much as the damsel. You know, it's like, you know, she, she just simply just wants her husband or soon to be husband back. Uh, and, and has little interest in the work. She just wants him to basically come home and, and leave all that behind. And so uh, she's a much stronger character here. Uh, and I think, again, having not seen any of other uh, Nicola Pageant's work, I mean, she clearly, you know, I, I think it probably brought a lot to the role because she's done a lot of television work. I'm assuming she was a bit more well-known uh, in 73 than she is today, so... So, I mean, that's pretty much part one. The creature is created. I, I sort of divide it up as part one is Frankenstein, part two is Bride of Frankenstein. But we do have a climax at the end of part one where the creature, or Victor confronts the creature. It's been a while since I watched it, but I think the creature realizes he's deteriorating and is heartbroken about that. And yeah. so he basically tries to commit suicide. He throws himself over a cliff, lands on the beach, of course, gets up and walks down the beach, and that is where part one ends. I, I do want to say here, too, as far as production values go, the dummy that they used when he threw off a cliff is one of the best I've ever seen. <laughs> Usually, you know, the arms and the legs are flopping, yeah, and it, yeah. it's like they're stuffed with newspaper when you used to build a scarecrow at Halloween. So it, a lot of money was put into this dummy. It looked very realistic, looked like a man actually going over uh, so that's another example of attention to detail that, that the movie played. Can you think of anything else from part one that you want to mention? No. Um, I think that was a good cliffhanger. It was a good way to end. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> Literally, Cliff, yes. Anyway. Again, being that it was the end of part one, you want to bring people into part two. Clearly, the big cliffhanger is the creature alive or dead. You know there's a whole other part coming, so... Where's the rest of the story come into play? So it was a good, good way to end it. And part two backtrack, backtracks just a little bit. It shows him getting up on the beach. Yes, indeed, he is alive and walks off into, I guess, a forest or the woods that are nearby to the beach. I guess it's become such a trope in these movies. I was a little disappointed that we had a blind musician that he encounters and goes into the cabin uh, that's nitpicking it's just a personal choice that's a big part of the story he's got to meet someone who can't see him that recognizes him as a human uh, not a complaint i guess just a personal preference that uh, and maybe at that time it probably wasn't as familiar a trope as it is today it was funny because I, when i watched that sequence i for whatever reason i wasn't drawn back to Bride of Frankenstein. I was yeah. I was drawn into Young Frankenstein. Yep. That is what happens. That yep. 
I don't know, the impact of that sequence is, is becomes almost comical no matter how you look at it. I think it was unnecessary because in the original Bride of Frankenstein, that is the first time that we really hear the monster speak and begin to really kind of develop uh, some more humanistic mannerisms. Whereas here, he'd already been that. I don't know. It seemed unnecessary in this particular version. I think you could have eliminated that and it would have been, I think it would have been fine. They did turn it into something very, very clever though. The the blind man's daughter or granddaughter was Agatha Jane Seymour and the creature gets an attachment to her unseen. Of course, she panics when she sees him and his state of deterioration runs out into the road and is run over by a carriage. Another example of a great dummy. That was very realistic when uh, the carriage ran over. And I guess that, that's, that's probably why that, that scene is there. That does serve, does serve a purpose. I don't know. I think it maybe could have been done differently without having to tie in the old Gene Hackman musician living in the forest routine. And then I think it, it just gets kind of odd as Polidori becomes more uh, a central character. This is a little... The the reason for creating, and not really a bride, but Prima, the, the girl, is, is different and unique than other movies. Uh, the way she's created is different. I guess, in essence, Polidori is like... Who is it in Bride? Pretorius? Yes, Pretorius. Polidori is like Pretorius in that his methods of creation are magical or mystical rather than scientific i guess maybe not so much here because there is more of a it's more of a chemical i guess creation that really brings prima to life you know what i thought of when i saw that scene a lava lamp (laughs) no not when i saw that scene initially i was i I, it, it harkened back to monster bash when we watched the edison version of frankenstein and how frankenstein the monsters essentially created i don't know if that was intentional because the Edison version was lost at that point and had not been seen for decades. I, I have a feeling that, but now you look at it, it's like, wow, there's there, I, to me, there was a, a lot of similarity, right? But I don't think it was, it would have been intentional in 73 because no one had seen the Edison version. I don't think that resurfaced until maybe the eighties, maybe the nineties. Even it was, it was mm. still lost. I believe in 73. And this is terrible. It's been so long since I've read Frankenstein, and I should know this, but I think even in the novel originally by Mary Shelley, he was created from more, at least vague, means than, you know, something as literal as raising him to the sky and having lightning strike. I Wasn't that whole notion pretty much done in with there the was first more, Frankenstein There movie? was definitely more mystical nature to it than than the you know the more graphic that became the more popular as as different versions so not only does polidori favor these other methods he's downright critical of the methods that frankenstein and clerval used to create the creature he seems to have known that doing it with electricity would cause these results and isn't surprised that their beautiful creature became uh, deteriorated. Uh, he crit- criticizes all through the movie the the means of, of electricity as a, a way to bring him to life and, and, and favors his methods. 
I've so, done a little bit of research oh, okay. about this, the, the Edison version of, of Frankenstein. Apparently in, in 1963, there was plot description and stills were discovered, uh, published in a March 15th, 1910 edition of the film catalog, the Edison Kinetogram. There was a print of the film purchased by a Wisconsin film collector, Alois Detlef, probably butchering that name, in the early 1950s, but he didn't realize its rarity until many years later. Its existence was first revealed in the mid-1970s in a very uh, deteriorated state, and a 35-millimeter preserved copy was made in the late 1970s. So it's a little earlier than I thought. I still don't think, though, in 73, beyond seeing the plot description in stills, they would have had access to that film. But it's possible that they may have read about the film and maybe that, that kind of played a part in, in, in the finished product. I don't know. I hmm. could be, we could be seeing stuff. I could be seeing stuff that's not there. But for me, that was definitely uh, definitely uh, a connection that I Yeah, I, I can see that. So refresh me. What was the purpose, really, of bringing the woman to life? I know the creature brings her mangled body to the laboratory, he doesn't know that Polidori is there, right? He thinks probably that's where Victor still is, and maybe he's bringing her so that Victor can help her. Yeah, that, that was where but I got But he doesn't ever... He becomes a pawn, then, of Polidori. It's never yes. the creature's desire to bring her back to life. So that's a little... I just remember it being different. I don't remember the particulars of the reason for for bringing Prima to life other well, Poly- than it was Polidori's, he's the mad scientist at this point. Mad scientist, and he's wanting to create, I don't know, you, not necessarily a companion, but he wanted to create this person, though, that would kind of semi really kind of be a companion to him. I mean... Oh, to him, yes, yeah. not to the creature. Not yeah. to the creature. In fact, I mean, he does later talk about all the plans he has. He's going to use this Prima to infiltrate government and run the world and... He doesn't even really talk so much about it being a new breed of, of human that he's going to use. He's talking specifically about her and how she is going to help him achieve all of these Yeah, it's goals. more about his goals, right. it, it really. Uh, not necessarily... Like, it's like she, she is going to be his property, I guess, that he's going to use. Which, again, is a different kind of take on... Because I, I don't think we've ever really had that in another movie where a creature bride or otherwise has been created with the purpose of using that person as a as a tool to gain wealth and and power i don't believe that's ever been touched on in another frankenstein version right and so polidori also uses the creature as a a means of blackmail to victor so that victor will assist him and why is that why can polidori not conduct some of these experiments on his own I'm, I'm drawing a blank. He has no hands. Oh my gosh, the hands, yes. Yes. <laughs> he removes his gloves and he has yes. mangled stumps for hands. That's certainly a new uh, feature of the story. Yeah, yeah, because up to that point, you know, I you always thought maybe he just had gloves on or something. But then there was some scenes where he was doing the weird gestures and you're like, you know, opening things or whatever. You're kind of like wondering... What is up with this guy's hands? I had forgot about that. Yeah, and I had forgotten it until I rewatched it, and it was truly shocking at that point. I, 
Yeah, and it was pretty graphic yes, too, if yes. I recall. That was that was there was again. There's some very graphic moments in this, and that was certainly. I remember when that happened. I was like, "Whoa, that's kind of graphic for '73 television." So the bride's created, or I keep saying the bride, the equivalent of the bride is created, and he wants to show her off to society. So one of those big, beautiful balls that we mentioned earlier, he brings her, and she's the life of the party. All the men are smitten by her, want to dance with her. But then the creature bursts in, probably at one of his worst states of decay, and is not really happy about what's going on. Yeah. Clearly, maybe the affection for her or anger at the situation. I don't know. Yeah, I can't, I don't really remember what brought him there. And I don't know that he came originally so angry, If, but the, the shrieks of the people that saw him and running in the chaos and people maybe trying to tackle him, aggravated of course, him. aggravated him. And it culminates in possibly the most iconic scene of, of this movie, would you say? Oh, yeah, yeah. Tell, Again, very, very horrific moment. Tell us what happens. Well, this is where uh, the creature um, rips the head of, <laughs> of uh, Prima off. I mean, just out of anger, I guess, or out of maybe trying to, I don't know, reclaim in a way. I don't know if he felt a connection to her, but... And I don't know if it was even the intent of ending her life, but maybe it was. I don't know. What do you think? What was his intentions behind it? I mean, because it was animalistic. He rips the head off. And, of course, you know, everyone's screaming. And you've got, again, graphic moment for 73 television. I am not really recalling what the what his motivation was at that point. It, it, was some, it wasn't that just he was crazy because he had de- deteriorated. He was angry about something. And... I think but was he locked up? Did, had Polidori locked him up? Yeah, I think I think it was. I think there was. I don't know. I think it was kind of like he felt, you know, maybe responsible for her death. He wanted her brought back to life, but maybe not as a tool. Maybe it was he he wanted her brought back to life to to save her life, but not be this this tool that Polidori was using. And so, in his maybe in his mind, it was to to end the life uh, that he maybe felt responsible for maybe in in playing a part in bringing it back to life and not not being happy with with the that fact that she was now a pawn being used by Polidori yeah and the way that film was filmed was very good as well I mean the the frame of the camera you know to her real head as he was pulling it and then I believe didn't thin the head roll across the floor. Yeah. Somebody yeah. probably kicked it as they were running. <laughs> yeah, one of the I don't know. It, yeah, it was. See. It was well done. You very you well done. Know what happened? You you didn't scream fakery. It it it, it was good. No, it was it was it was well done graphic and and I, I had forgotten that part actually when that came up. I was like I was shocked when that came up. I had I had not remembered that part of the movie. Again, it had been more than three decades since I've seen it. So uh, there were parts that, that I remembered vividly, you know, and then other parts that, that I just didn't remember at all. And that was, I didn't have any member, a memory of that climactic moment at all. Yeah. And so then the movie at this point is the point where in other Frankenstein or Bride of Frankenstein movies, it usually ends. There is a, an incident at the lab and it explodes. And so that's destroyed. And then we've had this incident at the ball Normally, it would have started wrapping up then, but really we get not really an epilogue. It's still quite a bit of of time spent on it, but another part of the story, and this did remind me of the novel because 
it, it takes place part of it on a ship and then ultimately I guess at the North Pole where it's snowy and cold that's something I, I definitely remember from the Mary Shelley novel and we don't usually see that no, part no. in a Frankenstein movie no. but that is probably the closest thing to the original novel well and I, and I you know I've always wondered why we don't see that scene more because I, I love that whole sequence other than maybe from a production standard I mean it, it's it's gonna maybe cost more to do that sequence on the ship I don't view it as anticlimactic. I mean, I think it's it's a, it's a good wrapping up of the story. Really, uh, I guess maybe it depends on what's what version of the creature are we getting? Are we getting this is a, a version of the creature who still is able to, even though he's very animalistic, but he's also still very human in many ways. Could you witness that sequence being played out with the? With the Karloff version of the monster, probably not. He's, but he's not because he's never as intelligent, right? And I can't think of. I, there was a movie, what Frankenstein Unbound, Roger Corman did, where they did kind of a, a sequence like that, uh, part of that or whatever. But usually, the monster is portrayed much more simplistically or animalistically, and so I can see, I guess, why they don't, because it wouldn't necessarily. It'd be hard to see. Karloff or Lugosi or Cheney and in that role. Yeah, I, that's that's a good point. I, I'm sure that's why. Uh, but on the ship, on the way, Polidori pops up. He's still around. The creature pops up. Everyone ends up on this ship, which I think was intended for Victor and Elizabeth to just sort of sail away from yeah. their problems and get away from things. But everyone's there. Good uh, suspense, mood, atmosphere on the ship. Rocking at sea and treachery and betrayal um, the the scene where the creature gives Polidori his due by hooking him and raising him yeah. to the sky that that was all excellent yeah I I, I love that whole sequence I think that was great again um, uh, in this particular version of the story it works it works incredibly well yeah and then by the end it's just the two that survive Victor and his creature walking into the snow of the North Pole and this is where the the script contained an epilogue that was not filmed, and I kind of wish it would have been. Essentially, you know, following the the avalanche of, of snow, uh, we we see the seasons change. the The ice melts, and, and the creature's body uh, begins to float uh, into warmer waters. And as the ice melts, we see one of his hands. Uh, absorbing the rays of the sun, uh, and as it's described in, in what I read, uh, it responds like a flower. It opens up, and the hand begins to slowly move. I granted, I understand why they didn't include this because, as film, there's a definitive end to the story. This would have left the opening for a sequel, clearly to to be done. But I love that. I think that would have been a much better ending. I mean, I, I like the ending as it was. I think with the hand moving would have been better. Yeah, I, I like that. I, I'm not sure it's such a definitive end as you say, because Frankenstein comes back from anything. You can assume that the avalanche didn't crush him. But that would just have been a nice little stinger to have at the end. I and As it is, even though the, the avalanche is such a, a climac climactic scene, it just then sort of ends. And that would have just been a nice little coda to have on it. Well, I think so. I mean, as you said, well, the monster, you know, we assume the monster could potentially survive. But you don't see it. 
And so if you don't see it, then it's left up to the viewer to interpret, well, you know, the monster's still going to survive, or nope, this is definitely going to be the end. This is the, nope, monster's still alive. You know, mm -hmm. what's going to happen next? I would, have, I would have liked to have seen that done. Wow, I have to say, after going through this and talking with you, I think I like it a little more than I thought I did. You brought up some great points that I hadn't thought of. It makes me appreciate certain aspects of it more. That's why I love talking about movies with you so much. You bring so much to it that I don't think of. So I, uh, I'll raise my opinion of it just a little bit here, and uh, I kind of want to watch it again. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not perfect, but at least we get to see it now as it was originally seen. Uh, the DVD, which was released in uh, 2006, I believe, not a lot of extras with it, but uh, it is the unedited version. It's, it's just, just over three hours long, uh, and that's really the best way to see it. Uh, if you've seen another version or an edited version, you're missing out, and, and it's uh, anytime a miniseries is cut down like that, you lose certain plot points or certain uh, key developments. So uh, seek out the 2006 DVD. It's still in print. It's super cheap on Amazon. Well worth seeing. You know, we talked about the reason why this movie kind of slipped into obscurity and sadly remains in obscurity today because it's just not something that gets is going to get shown on television. Besides us talking here and talking with Sam uh, in the last episode, I don't recall it ever really being talked about on any of the other podcasts that I listen to. And I, if there's another podcast out there who's talked about it, let us know. I'd love to hear you know what they say about it because I just don't think I've ever heard it talked about. And I, until this magazine, uh, Little Shop of Horrors, issue 38, came out, I can't recall ever seeing it, even in any type of book I've got. I've got a a book called Fantastic Television that was... Uh, printed late 70s, circa 1980, that actually has it listed in its made-for-TV movie section, which at the time, again, it was making the rounds of the UHF stations with great regularity. But, you know, after that, I've never seen it pop up in any other books. Hmm. Yeah, I got it a couple years ago. It came in back into my consciousness for some reason, and so I looked on Amazon, and yeah, it was cheap, so I got it. It was something I wanted to have. But yeah, certainly nothing. I think it's mentioned here and there, but there has been nothing coming close to the significance that this magazine pays it. So yeah, check that out. Check out the magazine, Little Shop of Horrors. Check out Sam Irvin. It's been a great couple of episodes talking about this. Any last words before we take a break and then come back with our regular features? No, no, I've had a lot of fun. This is just another one of those... Uh, and this was a rediscovery for me. This wasn't a first time viewing, but it felt like it because it had been so long. So uh, uh, just another reason why I love doing, uh, doing the Classic Chorus Club podcast. Absolutely. We'll be right back. Prepare for a spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster, Monster Kid, Kid Radio. Radio. Hear your host, Derek M. Cook and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classic and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies. Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher, or visit monsterkidradio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster, monster Kid, Kid Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Price, and Joel Hodgson. Listen to discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, 
Island of Terror, and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the HP Lovecraft Film Festival. Classic monsters. Modern talk. And the head of Rondo Hatton. Only on Monster Monster Kid Radio! Welcome back. Richard and I were just talking off air. You know, we our sweet spot seems to be two hours. We can't seem to record a, a podcast much under that. We thought this would be it because we were only talking about one movie, but here we go. So we may as well forge onward and, and wrap up, and I bet we'll bring it in right at two hours. So our uh, new releases for the month of August... We talked about this last time, but Shin Godzilla is coming out August 1st from Funimation. I'm eager to get that and to see that again. Now, let's let's do a side tangent here. Did you see at the the recent G-Fest, they had, I believe, the director of Shin Godzilla, and we won't be getting anything more from Toho for several years because of the American version. Legendary Pictures? Yes. Yes. Because their their timeline for films and what they've got coming up prevents Toho from making another Godzilla film until, what, 2020, I believe? Because Legendary, they had to get Shin Godzilla out last year, so many months before Kong Skull Island came out, which, of course, tied into Godzilla. And now we've got uh, Godzilla, King of the Monsters, and... Is it Godzilla versus Kong or Kong versus Godzilla? I think it's Kong versus Godzilla. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Anyway, we're going to have King Kong versus Godzilla. Only then can Toho do another film. They, they can do an anime, which I know they're supposedly going to have an anime oh, film coming out this that year. That would be cool. Which I haven't heard anything on. And, and But in any case, Shin Godzilla was, was kind of rushed in production and... Unfortunately, there won't be anything more from Toho now for, as we record this, uh, probably another three years before we're getting anything more from Toho. Um, I like where they're going with the Legendary Pictures take. I didn't, you know, I liked Godzilla that they did. Some people didn't. I didn't think it was that bad. I know you like Shin Godzilla a little better than I did. Uh, I didn't hate it, but it wasn't my favorite. So, but yes, I'm going to add it to my collection because I've got every other Godzilla (laughs) film. I've got to get this one. And it was good. And I do actually want to revisit it. It's a film because of the subtitles. It's, it's, there's a lot going on. And you're constantly going back and forth, watching, reading, watching, reading. And it's something that takes, I think, a couple, couple viewings to, to truly appreciate. Right. I saw that headline, and I, I imagined that was why there wouldn't be something coming out till 2020. So grab Shin Godzilla, savor it. Take your time watching it because it'll be a while before you see uh, another one from Japan, I guess. August isn't that great for new releases, which gives me two thoughts. One, which I naturally go to, is, oh, good, I'll use that time and money to pick up some things I haven't gotten, where my more logical self says, that's a good time for you to not buy anything so that you can (laughs) save money. (laughs) I'm leaning towards that. You know, as, as we record this, it is... The, the latter part of July, and there is the 50% off Criterion sale at Barnes & Noble. I am proud to say I have not succumbed this time. I'm not buying anything. Uh, they do it twice a year, and so uh, I actually still have some things that I purchased last year that I haven't had a chance to dive into. So I, with great restraint that I'm proud of myself, 
I have not succumbed and purchased anything on that list. And I'm proud of you. I haven't quite wound down yet for Monster Bash. I had to get a couple Criterion. I've been waiting for months to get the most dangerous game. So I, I did. I had to order that, actually. None of the Barnes & Nobles around here had it in stock. I did purchase oh, another one. I don't remember what. And then I'm going to get Carnival of Souls. I, it's out of Barnes & Noble. I have to make a day trip to get to, but uh, I'm going to do that. So I, I picked up three, and, and then that'll be it. And then Carnival I, of Souls is, is an excellent Blu-ray to pick up. They, they do great with that. And there's a lot of fun extras on that. You take the time, set aside an afternoon, because they have a lot of the, uh, the industrial films that, that was made. Definitely take the time to, to check that out. Yeah, I remember when you were on Monster Kid Radio talking about that, which is an excellent episode you all should listen to if you haven't heard it. It could almost be an, an, a bonus feature uh, on the movie because it's such a good companion to, to watching. That's been one of my favorite episodes that you guys did. So, you know, a couple things. We've mentioned most of these before. I, I don't even think I'll mention them again. There's a couple from Shout Factory and Arrow kind of related to our conversation today there is a television movie that came out in 78 coming out summer of fear that had linda blair and was directed by wes craven wow so that's coming out on the 29th also on the 29th i know nothing about this movie i've never heard of it but the description it makes it sound interesting and let's see if you can guess it from this description it'd be amazing if you could Tagline is, from Ghostly Hark Mountain, this eerie story of witches, voodoo, devils, monsters. <laughs> and the name of it will not indicate any of that. Uh, so I'll just say it. The Legend of Hillbilly John. Okay. Have you ever heard of that? I've heard of it. I have heard of it. Uh, I, I've heard it's a really bad movie, um, but I've never actually seen it. So hmm. yes, there are some movies I haven't seen. I know that... Uh, Derek over at Monster Kid Radio has given me grief. There's a movie that I haven't seen. It's possible, yes. and I, But I am familiar with it. And speaking of Wes Craven, which we did a, a minute ago, uh, birthdays for the month of August. He leads us off. He was born on August 2nd of 1939. Another landmark director, John Landis, was born the day after and several years later, August 3rd, 1950. One of my favorite writers from the golden age of horror and universal, Kurt Siodmak, was born on August 10th of 1902. He, in essence, created the werewolf wolfman legend that, that lives today because that was an original creation uh, that did not come from literature or a story like Dracula or, or Frankenstein did. Uh, he's written some good, good movies. On August 16th of 1899, Glenn Strange, he was the last actor to play the Frankenstein monster in the Universal series? Yes. Okay. Yeah, he was in the last three movies. House of Frankenstein, House of Dracula, and Abbott and Gustello meet Frankenstein. Also, the bartender in Gunsmoke, tying it back to an earlier <laughs> topic. Evelyn Anchors, the lovely Evelyn Anchors, born on August 17th, 1918. Again, a coincidence, Mary Shelley, born August 30th, 1797. And then 100 years later, God, that sounds crazy to say that, but August 31st of 1897, Frederick March. I mention him because he's my favorite depiction of Mr. Hyde, oh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Yeah, Hyde. Yeah, that's my favorite version as well. He does, and the camera work they do to do the makeup work on that is amazing. 
Yeah, not only the makeup, which is my favorite makeup, but he he adds so much to it with his mannerisms and everything. Yeah, so, yeah the transformation that, sequence is the best I think out of the John Barrymore version is a close second, but right. yeah. So those are birthdays. Uh, we have a just a, well, and there are others too. By the way, I don't want to indicate that those are the only horror royalty that was born in uh, August. Not as many movie anniversaries for the month of August that I we would normally talk about, but a, a few that I picked up. White Zombie, August 4th. It came out in 1932. Is that the one that's considered the first zombie movie? or Yeah, because that would be before I walked with the zombie. It is, yeah. Because uh, there's no silent movie depictions of zombies, so that would be the earliest. Suspiria. Oh, what is it? Suspiria. Suspiria. <laughs> I still can't do that. Uh, that came out in August 12th of 1977, a movie that I just continue to love. I don't think Richards is hip on it. I, and another one to put on our list that I'd like to talk about is Targets. That came out August 15th of 68. But the Karloff? Yep. I, that would be, yeah, it's not my favorite Karloff film, but it's definitely uh, one of his best films if you look at it collectively. Suspiria... I know we. I don't know if we talked about this on on the show or not, but they have found a uh, a new print of yes. Suspiria, and it's getting well. It's getting a theatrical run, which I don't think is coming here. I think Chicago is the closest. But then eventually we'll get a Blu-ray release. I will purchase that because I have said I want to see a good good print of Suspiria. The version I saw recently with you know was was better than what i had seen years ago from netflix still something i feel I, i'm looking forward to seeing that new that new uh, restored print yeah i am too that uh, was so much fun when we watched those movies from 77 for the nightmare junkhead podcast uh, and then finally the last one i'll mention and got a couple of reasons for doing this the war of the worlds came out august 26 1953 and i just want to mention that derek is hosting a monster crash is that what he calls them Yes. Uh, in Portland, the Portland area for a screening of War of the Worlds. It's coming up. I don't know if it was particularly designed for the anniversary. It's not a you know a significant year like 30th anniversary or something. But nevertheless, he's hosting that if you're in the area. I know I'd certainly go and crash with him if I was there. I don't really have anything for the TV terror guide this month. I started looking up. I usually look up TCM, you know, because... I still prefer to watch movies without commercials, and that's where you find the most classic horror movies is on TCM. Uh, their website was acting up when I was looking, but it did appear that on August 3rd, they're doing a day of silent movies, and many of them had Lon Chaney in them. So it's definitely worth checking out TCM on August 3rd, I believe. That could be a, it's a Tuesday or a Thursday, I believe. It's uh, August 3rd is a Thursday. Okay, Thursday. So schedule a day off of work and veg out in front of... Uh... I haven't had Turner Classic Movies for a while because I cut the cord, and, and that's the one thing that I miss. But I have been still getting the, the, the monthly magazine, so I see what I'm missing. <laughs> this, I guess it was August, is the last issue of the magazine. They are going strictly online, so no longer getting a guide in the mail for, for Turner Classics, which, I, as I understand, has got a few of the old-school fans in a bit of an uproar, who don't want to view it online, still like to have it in their hands, and I have to admit I'm one of those. So, oh, and so is my mother. She um, 
plans her month by circling movies that are going to be on TCM. Yeah, this, she's in their wine club and all of that. She's, well, she might not know she if she didn't pay attention to stuff come in. This will be the last one. August is the last one. Hmm. So um, after that, everyone gets a refund and they're going strictly online. In the Venera, indeed. I believe that brings us to the end of our episode. This is the time that we do shameless plugs for our own projects. Would you like to go first, Richard? I will. You know, it's been kind of a quiet month over at uh, kccinephile.com. I post Monster Bash. I dive back into my sci-fi summer fest, I think is what I called it. But I'll admit, the last several weeks, I just, I took a break. Uh, I decided, I was like, I'm just, just, I needed some time to get caught up in some other stuff. So uh, the Hitchcock journey as well kind of took a break the last couple of weeks. Um, so I've decided with the Hitchcock journey, originally my goal was to try to finish it all by the end of the year. Not going to happen. I'm going to continue that journey. Um, there just may be breaks in between. So it may not be every single week, but I'm still going to work my way through because I'm, I'm down to two more films before I get to the good stuff. I can't quit now. So if you don't see it every week, fear not. I'm going to continue that. It's just going to bleed on over to 2018. As far as the the, the list of sci-fi movies, I don't know if I'm going to get all the ones in I originally had hoped to do this summer. I think I'll still do a few more before summer's over with. Uh, and summer, I guess, technically bleeds over into September. So I may just have to kind of pick and choose. That's just a matter of timing. But I haven't given up on it. There'll still be a few more of those coming up in future weeks. The other thing I, I did, I was invited to join uh, one of the, the Mimiverse podcasts. This is the Mimiverse monthly audio cast. Uh, Christopher Mim invited me to come on and do a segment, kind of of my choosing, but kind of classic horror movie related. And so with the... I guess it was the July episode, um, I created the Kansas City Crypt. It's going to be a little five, ten minute segment in there where I talk about classic movies. Uh, We talked about kind of a compare and contrast to The Mummy uh, last time, the Karloff version and the Tom Cruise version. I think think for August, uh, I haven't decided yet, but I've got a few things. I'm thinking it may be a little discussion on Night of the Living Dead. Uh, which is the end of, as we talked about, or one end anyway, of the classic horror genre. So I might talk a little bit about that. That's a fun little, that's a monthly segment. So that's in addition to, I haven't done anything for Dread Media lately, although I've got a few things I'm going to be recording in the next couple of weeks, uh, including a conversation on uh, the eight movies. Since I recently revisited Rise of the Planet of the Apes, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, and just watched War. I figured now would be a good time to have a little discussion on those three films. That'll be coming up probably sometime in August for over at Dread Media. And what are you doing in the mainstream world with uh, Boom Howdy or Downright Creepy? You've had a couple of reviews posted. I have. I just recently watched Dunkirk. And uh, I'm glad to see I'm not the only one out there who hasn't been totally blown away by Dunkirk. There's a few others out there who are kind of in, in sync with me. It is a great film, but it's not the greatest war film of all time. And and I know a lot of people are saying that, and I'm just going to go against the grain. It's got some, some flaws. Um, and you may be one of those moviegoers. You can set aside those flaws. But uh, I think a, a lack of character development, I get it. The movie's supposed to be about 
the incident and not about the characters, but I had a hard time getting invested in the incident if I really don't even know who the characters are. Nonetheless, you can catch my review on that uh, over at Boom Howdy, and I've got a link to it from uh, my site at Kansas City Cinephile. And me, it's funny you mentioned taking a break or whatever. I feel like I've been on a break from my blog ever since we started the podcast. But I, I, and I've mentioned this before, but it's really happening. In fact, this weekend, when I'm done here, the rest of my weekend is devoted to a, a spiffing up of my website. I had run into a person at Planet Comic Con that did some fantastic artwork of the Universal Monsters and just asked him if he ever did any other stuff. Long story short, he has designed a new header for the, the blog and the social medias. So I'm going to be, you know, changing the colors to go with that and all of that. And I'm going to kind of create some new pages. When I started out, one of my pages on the blog was just a listing of all the horror movies that I talk about either on the blog or on social media. And I had links and this list has become so big that I'm going to break it in to the different areas, eras or ages that I mentioned earlier in the podcast. That was the kind of the purpose for my research on that. Those will be more manageable and hopefully helpful to people that want to do any research on the old classic horror movies. Um, sitting here on the table is an issue of We Belong Dead, number 19, uh, that I have an article in on The Pit and the Pendulum. So check that out. You, Unless you live near a store in a big city that might carry it, you've got to get it uh, from, from England, from uh, We Belong Dead, probably .co.uk. You can look it up. Uh, not just my article, but lots of good articles. It's in it's there. a it's like a digest. It's not really a, a magazine. It is a digest that is full of beautiful colors and is incredibly well laid out. Uh, definitely, definitely worth checking out. I, I'm I'm thankful to have a copy in my hands. And Mr. Jeffrey Owens has an article listed in it, and it's well worth the price of admission. Oh, thank you. Richard, the sound of the ram's horn indicates that we have a big announcement to make. The Classic Horrors Club podcast now has a Google Voice number, so our listeners can participate in our monthly meetings. We invite you to call to give us feedback or participate in the conversation. It's 616-649-2582. That's 616-649-CLUB. One more time, 616-649-2582 or 616 616- 649 Club. If you'd prefer to contribute via email, you can drop us a line at classichorrors.club at gmail.com. Please take the time, give us a call, even if it's just a quick hello, let us know you're out there, and uh, any thoughts, suggestions, comments, always appreciated. That's right. Gosh, Richard, where are we headed? We've had a guest well, well, before that, and we didn't even make big fanfare of it. We now have show notes. We, we had do. a guest. We now have a line for people to call in that's we're, we're just getting serious about this, aren't we'll, we? We'll be a three-hour podcast before you know it. <laughs> That's right. And at, at 1.58, let, let's call it. Well, oh. want to talk about what's coming up? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. We, we have a schedule a little bit. Definitely in the next two months, we know for sure what we're doing. Yes, we're going to pull pull the trigger. Our, uh, our next episode is going to be about dark shadows and, and and so we're going to assume it's our september uh episode at this point uh, i have actually in my hands right now the 50th anniversary uh six disc 
collector's edition set uh, that has over 20 hours of Dark Shadows goodness. It's got the, uh, what do we have here? The movie-length presentations of, of two of Dark Shadows' most popular stories, The Vampire Curse and The Haunting of Collinwood, along with 38 complete episodes, uh, new episode introductions by David Selby. I mean, a lot of good stuff on here. Jeff is a Dark Shadows nut, and I have only seen handful of episodes of it. So this is going to be very much a new experience for me, and I'm actually looking forward to it. We're going to be talking about uh, talking about the series. We're going to be talking about, to a lesser degree, the movies, and uh, looking forward to to diving in finally to Dark Shadows for our next episode. Cannot wait. For October, we're going to be doing a special episode on the Mimiverse. We're going to be uh, going to the premiere of Christopher R. Mim's next film, The Demon with the Atomic Brain, which is scheduled at this point for early October. So we're also going to be talking about the Mimiverse films and just doing a whole episode uh, on the Mimiverse and uh, hopefully maybe even hearing a word or two from Mr. Christopher R. Mim himself as we will be attending the film premiere in Minnesota. Beyond that, won't make any hard commitments, but we've got some other guests coming on the show uh, as we look towards uh, the holidays, maybe uh, getting some of our friends who are writers and creators on to give them an opportunity to give kind of that Christmas wish list a boost. Uh, you might also be hearing a little bit about Donovan's brain sooner than later. We've been talking about that a little bit, and that may be happening as well as uh, the village of the children of the remake of The Damned <laughs> Ooh, that's coming our, uh, somewhere down the way as well. That's the title for when we post it. So that's what we've got coming up, taking us through the rest of 2017 and on into 2018. I think uh, I'm looking forward to it. I am too. I am too. Soon we will be at our one-year anniversary. We'll have 12 episodes under our belt. We'll have to have virtual cake for everyone. Oh, that's right. All right, with that, I am going to call the meeting to a close. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to the Phantom Podcast Network for hosting us. We'll call the meeting to an end. We'll see you next time. Thank you, everyone. Bye.